of knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Pro Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 531. It's just me and Jason, and we're going to talk some drugs, uh, psychedelic drugs to be specific. You know, a lot of people take issue uh, when I talk about drugs, but you've got to realize that I came of age in the middle of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. As a matter of fact, I came of, I, I turned 21 in 1984. Uh, in the middle of the biggest party this country has ever known, to my knowledge, maybe the 20s, but I wasn't there. Certainly the 80s party had a lot more drugs, I would imagine, I'm guessing. And what I saw of what psychedelic drugs do, uh, it's not a good thing. And people argue that, well, you can use it for spiritual reasons. And sure, that is a legit argument. But my counter argument is where we have grown up, has prevented our mindset from making that a valid possibility without assistance. That's my point of view. If you want to use these types of drugs that typically shaman in other countries use, I think you need to prep for it. I think you need to train for it. And if you're going to seriously go on a spiritual endeavor, I think you need a guide. That's my point of view. In terms of these laboratory-created psychedelics, I'm not down with it. First of all, you don't know what's in it. And back in the day when LSD was being passed around, you had no clue how it was made, who made it, what the differences were. And there were clearly differences. How many people remember the ridiculous line in the uh, Woodstock movie? They get on the mic and say something like, don't take the brown acid. It's a bad batch. Anyhow, with all that said, we're going to jump in here. We'll lay down what we can lay down. Anything you want to add, Jason, before we get in? I actually came across that comment while uh, looking up the stuff for this. And apparently that wasn't actually the case, but they did announce it anyway. What do you mean it wasn't the case? There was something else going on? Because I'm just referencing what I heard in the movie. Apparently Santana took the brown acid and the comments that I was seeing were all acid is the same. Well, you know, it's like all these laboratory drugs, you you know, it's not the same. You don't know the skill level of the person made it, what, you know, the chemicals they had available to make it. It's about, you know, that's one thing that happened in California. I was at the epicenter, literally ground zero for methamphetamine, the kickoff. And they kept outlawing parts of how people made it. And it got worse and worse and worse for you. But before all that happened, they were purposely making different kinds of meth to do different things to people. They knew that they could influence behavior with how they made that drug. And I know this firsthand, but anyhow, let's jump into psychedelics. The National Library of Medicine has this to say about psychedelics. Psychedelics are powerful psychoactive substances that alter perception and mood and affect numerous cognitive processes. They are generally considered physiologically safe, and do not lead to dependence or addiction. Their origin predates written history, and they were employed by early cultures in many socio-cultural and ritualed contexts. After the virtually contemporaneous discovery of LSD and the identification of serotonin in the brain, early research focused intensively on the possibility that LSD and other psychedelics had a serotonergic basis for their action. Today, there is a consensus that psychedelics are agonists or partial agonists at brain, serotonin, 
hydroxytryptamine-2A receptors with particular importance on those expressed on apical dendrites of neocortical pyramidal cells in layer 5, which is a mouthful. (laughs) Um, You know, there's a difference here, in my view, about the psychedelics we're going to talk about. There's the laboratory-made chemicals, uh, which I think typically we think of LSD in this way. And then there are other drugs like magic mushrooms. Now, to be perfectly fair for all the people who are going to argue that there are legit uses beyond just getting high. I have known some people who have used mushroom in spiritual ways, but these are people who spent lifetimes on a spiritual path. Uh, Some of them were guided into it by a so-called shaman or other things. But from my point of view, what I notice about growing up in America is we know how to party. And when we alter consciousness with any drugs, I, in my view, our ability to connect that with getting high or partying overshadows the spiritual possibilities, which isn't to say a serious individual can do it. I've seen it done, but I think for most people, that's probably not the case. One of the earliest substances that humanity most likely imbibed to have a trip would be what are generally called magic mushrooms. Magic mushrooms, sometimes called shrooms or just mushrooms, are a type of mushroom that contains the drugs psilocybin or psilocin, which cause hallucinations. Psilocybin powder can also be procured in capsule form. You can consume mushrooms in either fresh or dried form. Powdered psilocybin can be snorted or injected. Mushrooms can also be steeped into tea, added to cooked foods, or added to fruit juice if powdered. Be warned, however, that some mushrooms that look like psilocybin mushrooms are actually of a poisonous variety. If you eat these, you could damage your liver or even die. Currently in the United States and in most other countries, although certainly not all, it is against the law to grow, sell, or carry mushrooms. Historically, there are cave paintings dated to thousands of years ago that seem to represent magic mushrooms. And by the way, there are certain states and other places in the world where they're slowly but surely letting people do different things depending upon the location with this particular substance or group of substances. Okay, so the thing about mushrooms for people who have never done them is they are powerful and they could sneak up on you. There are lots of uses that are being legitimized right now and under the idea of microdosing. As a matter of fact, in a number of places, uh, you can legally get What I think the way people say it, Jason, is psilocybin, or they say psilocybin, but it's psilocybin, I believe. And you get microdosing, and it's being shown clinically to have all these benefits. From my personal point of view, the first time that I did so-called magic mushrooms in Southern California, and I was pretty young. I don't think I was 20 yet. Matter of fact, I know I wasn't 20 yet. And I didn't get high. And this happened a couple times. And so I was with a girlfriend and we decided, well, enough's enough. And we got some mushrooms and we put them in a blender and we put ice cream in the blender and we made a little drink and we were sitting there talking about how nothing was happening again. And then wham, everything changes and they are extremely powerful. That's what I can get across. And at the time, I went into it thinking, you know, I've done this a couple times and nothing's happened. So I probably overdid it a bit that time. But one of the odd things during the experience that I remember 
is everything that was gold, like real gold, took on this really bizarre green hue, but it altered, or for me, that time, that particular time, it alters everything. Uh, you can, uh, I, don't, I don't know how to describe it. You can hear colors or I could hear colors. I could smell sound, things like this. And it's clearly a mental perception. But what I want to get across is this is not a trifle. This is not a thing to trifle with. This is overwhelmingly powerful. Changes perception in ways that I don't even really think we have language to communicate. The next thing we can mention is peyote and mescaline. From the earliest recorded time, peyote has been used by indigenous peoples in northern Mexico and the southwestern United States in some of their religious rites. Mescaline can be extracted from peyote or produced synthetically. Consuming peyote or mescaline can cause intense nausea, vomiting, dilation of the pupils, increased heart rate, increased blood pressure, a rise in body temperature that could cause heavy perspiration, headaches, muscle weakness, and impaired motor coordination. However, it is for the psychoactive properties that would make someone want to consume peyote or mescaline. Effects include illusions, hallucinations, an altered perception of space and or time, and an altered body image. These effects are what are part of many religious rites of the aforementioned peoples. Certain laws protect the use of these substances under those circumstances by such tribes in the United States. Which I believe is still going on. Back in the day, I had read all the writings under the name Carlos Castaneda, which has to do with what we're talking about here the peyote mescaline route, truly part of religious ceremonies, truly um, not a cultural, we're going to get high here thing. I even read accounts where certain, I, I guess, tribes would go out to collect the inducing substance from a cactus and they would do a ceremony and start walking in a direction, but they couldn't harvest until the plant that they were looking for stopped them from walking forward. In other words, even if I was walking and the plant was one, you know, one foot to my right, I couldn't harvest that plant. It was part of the tradition, the spiritual tradition, where it had to literally block your path to harvest. Anyone interested in learning more about the truly spiritual paths used with these particular substances, typically harvested from mostly cactuses or in a desert setting like that, as far as I know, uh, you can still pick up the readings uh, that talk about Carlos Castaneda. And by the way, back in, I think it was the late 60s, early 70s, uh, his writings were zipping around through the, the Southern California University systems uh, and getting defamed a lot by the professors at some of these institutions. In South America, another well-known psychoactive substance used by Native peoples comes from the tree Anna Denanthera colubrina. Archaeological evidence shows that the beans from this tree have been used as hallucinogens for thousands of years. The oldest clear evidence of use comes from pipes made of puma bone found with the beans in Argentina. The pipes were found to contain the hallucinogen DMT, one of the compounds found in the beans. Radiocarbon testing of the material gave a date of 2130 BC, suggesting that antithera use as a hallucinogen is over 4,000 years old. 
Snuff trays and tubes were found in the central Peruvian coast dating back to 1200 BC. Archaeological evidence of insulflation use within the period 500 to 1000 AD in northern Chile has been reported. There are people who will make the argument that the use of magic mushrooms and other things uh, is a huge shaper of modern man. Of all the so-called, I'll just call them drugs, that we're going to talk about here, I have no experience with this one and there are a few others, but I do have experience with a number of the things we're going to talk about. One of the interesting things, and by the way, uh, from my point of view, taking LSD while it similarly changes your perception, it's a it's a different a different experience, or at least it was for me. And I've done both LSD and mushrooms a number of times. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say, as the first time I did LSD, the experience was not the same as the other times that I did LSD. As a matter of fact, I would say each time seemed to be different, whether the chemical makeup of whatever the hell it was I took was different. But one of the strange things is when you're out in nature, it gives you the perception that every single thing is alive, like a rock, (laughs) you know, like everything has like a spirit or a life to it. But as we go through, I'll mention the ones that I have direct experience with. And this one I do not have direct experience with. But I mean, look how long it's been in use as a spiritual, I don't know, mechanism, I guess is the word. 4,000 years or more that we're aware of. Next, let's discuss ergot, which is a fungal disease of cereal grasses, especially rye, caused by species of a certain kind of fungus. The disease decreases the production of viable grains by infected plants and can contaminate harvests. Ergot fungus can produce hallucinations and psychosis. Kaikion was an ancient Greek drink of various descriptions, commonly made with water, barley, and naturally occurring substances. Others could have been made with wine and grated cheese. However, it is widely believed that Kaikion refers to a psychoactive compounded brew that was used by members of the Eleusinian Mysteries. The ergot fungus could have contaminated the grains used to make the drink. Kaikion was said to be used at the climax of the Eleusian Mysteries to break a sacred fast, but is also mentioned as a favorite drink of Greek peasants. So here again, ergot I have no direct experience with, but I have done a good deal of research on the Eleusian Mysteries, which is kind of a misnomer because I think it's pretty clear that just to go out and do research, most of this information, whatever it was, has been lost. But it is clear that it was a big deal. It was named after a geographical region that there are provable accounts that Caesars wanted to get involved, even a Caesar from Rome being turned away because one of the precepts was if you killed someone, you couldn't take part in this. I think it's weird. It's like for a year, like if you killed someone, you can't do this for a year. And I don't know, you have to repent or something. But one of the things about the accounts that we still have of the Elysian Mysteries is that it was the most beneficial thing culturally uh, in the eyes of the people who were around then or knew something about it of any other thing that they were aware of. So whatever was going on there, it was quite a thing. It was a big deal. And ergot was part of it. Next, let's discuss Soma, which, in the Vedic tradition, is a ritual drink of importance among the early Vedic Indo-Aryans. The Rogveda text mentions it, particularly in the Soma Mandala. 
Gita mentions the drink in chapter 9. It is equivalent to the Iranian Hayoma. The stalks of the plant that were used were pressed between stones, and the juice was filtered through sheep's wool and then mixed with water in milk. After it was offered as a libation to the gods, the remainder of the soma was consumed by the priests and the sacrificer. It was highly valued for its exhilarating and, most likely, hallucinogenic effect. The personified deity soma was the master of plants, the healer of disease, and the bestower of riches. So I have no direct experience or knowledge of this at all, other than, if I'm not mistaken, Jason, Soma is the name of the drug from Brave New World that they get everyone on. Isn't? Do you remember that? Yep, that's what they called it. Pretty sure. So um, that's interesting that that's a deity. And in, in this usage, apparently the master of plants, but, uh, you know, is like, sounds like, sounds like, is like. Uh, I'm wondering if uh, the writer of Brave New World was aware of this to use that name for the drug uh, when they're taking over the world. They're going to drug everybody. Again, this idea is echoed in the movie that I've mentioned a number of times called Rollerball, the 1974, I think, version with James Caan. It's very stealthily hidden into the storyline. If you pay attention during the movie, when everyone's done with work, they have these little pill boxes they carry with them and they offer them. And there's, I think, one reference in the movie that makes it clear what's going on. James Caan offers the drug, which reminds me of the Brave New World, Soma, which is why I'm mentioning it, offers, opens his pill box and says, only take one, be careful, these things are powerful, or something to that effect, anyhow. The last one we will mention is ibogaine, which is a naturally occurring psychoactive substance found in plants in the family Apocynaceae. It is a psychedelic with dissociative properties and has been used to treat drug addictions. The psychoactivity of the root bark of the iboga tree, Tabernanthi aboga, from which ibogaine is extracted, was first discovered by the pygmy tribes of Central Africa who passed the knowledge to the Bouiti tribe of Gabon. French explorers, in turn, learned of it from the Bouiti tribe and brought ibogaine back to Europe in 1899-1900, where it was subsequently marketed in France as a stimulant under the trade name Lambarene. Ibogaine-containing preparations are used for medicinal and ritual purposes within the African spiritual traditions of the Bouiti, who claim to have learned it from the Pygmy peoples. Although Ibogaine's anti-addictive properties were first widely promoted in 1962 by Howard Lotzoff, an American scientific researcher, its Western medical use predates that by at least a century. Ibogaine is a big deal, and particularly in this time where so many people are addicted because we have a drug cartel running our medical systems, and they love to get people addicted to things to the point where it wasn't enough that they've got people addicted to opiates. Now they're doing these long-acting opiates, which are much like thousands of times harder to break the addiction. And no one's ever going to convince me that they don't know what they're doing. And Ibogaine, uh, I've done a hell of a lot of research. I've read a number of books on it. Ibogaine's a big deal. And I think that you're going to see resistance to any kind of legal usage in this country because all the accounts that I read that some of the worst addictions are dealt with in short order. And it's not just the addictions, mental problems, psychological hangups, so many things. People feel like they've been handed a new lot in life 
after this. Again, I have no direct experience with it, but I now know a number of people who have used Ibogaine and each of them has a similarly amazing tale to tell after the fact. As a matter of fact, from what I have read and researched and from the people that I know, including David Avocado Wolf, who have taken it and described, I would set this aside as a different effect mentally than something like magic mushrooms, uh, DMT. Uh, in my mind, not having any direct experience, the perception I currently have is that it stands alone and different to the point where I don't even think I would call it a psychedelic. Anyhow, that's just my point of view, but I have done one hell of a lot of research on Ibogaine, and I think it's a big deal. I think it's an important, important thing, particularly in these addicted times. Now let's move on to the 20th century and discuss lysergic acid diethylamide, or LSD. LSD is a rather powerful, mind-altering hallucinogenic substance, first synthesized by the Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman. In 1929, Albert Hoffman joined the pharmaceutical chemical department of Sandoz Laboratories, which was located in the city of Basel, as a co-worker with Professor Arthur Stoll, who was the founder and director of the pharmaceutical department. He began studying the medicinal plant squill and the previously mentioned fungus ergot as part of a program to purify and synthesize active constituents for use as pharmaceuticals. His main contribution was to elucidate the chemical structure of the common nucleus of psylla glycosides, which is an active principle of Mediterranean squill. While researching lysergic acid derivatives, Albert Hoffman first synthesized LSD on November 16, 1938. The main intention of this synthesis was to obtain a respiratory and circulatory stimulant known as an analeptic. The discovery was set aside for five years until April 16, 1943, when Hoffman decided to take a second look at it. So I don't know about you, Jason, but I have always felt like the discovery and research into LSD uh, has an underhanded connection to intelligentsia in the United States in some way. And that's just my perception. It is clear to me from all the research, particularly around Woodstock and that period of time when it was being used or weaponized, I guess is a better way to say it, to quell the uprising of young people who didn't want a world full of war and the way their parents had shaped things, that was real. Uh, LSD was one of the drugs used to kind of put a cap on the so-called youth revolution. But the LSD, I think, clearly was studied to a level where places like the CIA knew damn well that you could expand consciousness and do other things with it. And I think there were all kinds of recipes and ways of making it. And they knew a hell of a lot. And what they did was they worked on weaponizing it. We've told the tale of how Charles Manson magically skips his, you know, he's been thrown in jail and he skips, you know, showing up to talk to the people that you got to go talk to when you get out of jail. He skips all that, shows up at the Bay Area up in San Francisco, gets into a little, you know, there's a little medical place that's been set up, but it was all set up before he got there. And it was to dispatch acid out into the community. And it was related directly to Charles Manson. My point being, 
is I think they discovered that there are absolutely consciousness expanding applications. And I think what they were mainly focused on at that time anyway, was the weaponization to basically quell the uprising of young people. And it worked. Boy, did it work. While resynthesizing LSD, Albert Hoffman accidentally absorbed a small amount of the drug and discovered its powerful effects. He described what he felt as being affected by a remarkable restlessness combined with a slight dizziness. At home, I lay down and sank into a not unpleasant, intoxicated-like condition, characterized by an extremely stimulated imagination. In a dreamlike state with eyes closed, I found the daylight to be unpleasantly glaring. I perceived an uninterrupted stream of fantastic pictures, extraordinary shapes with intense kaleidoscopic play of colors. After approximately two hours, this condition faded away. So anyone who's interested in the tale that gets told about the supposed man in, I think it's Switzerland that discovers this, his name is Albert Hoffman. Uh, Quite a bit has been written on him. You can go find books. You can go find accounts. As a matter of fact, I think even YouTube is still covering, still has accounts of Hoffman. At least that's the story we're told about LSD. I think the majority of the LSD story is connected to intelligentsia. And I think it was studied a lot because of the mind-altering effects and the consciousness-expanding effects. And I think it was laying in wait to be weaponized by the time the 60s got here. Three days later, which brings us to April 19, 1943, Albert Hoffman intentionally ingested 250 micrograms of LSD, which he thought would represent a prudently safe small amount. In actuality, it was quite a strong dose. At first, his trip was not pleasant, as people appeared to be morphing into fantastical creatures. Office furniture moved and shifted like living entities, and he felt possessed by some sort of otherworldly forces. April 19th is now widely known as Bicycle Day, because as Hoffman began to feel LSD's effects, he attempted to ride to the safety of his home on his bicycle. This was the first intentional LSD trip in history. Hoffman's research with LSD influenced several psychiatrists, including Ronald A. Sanderson, who attempted to develop its use in psychotherapy. Sanderson's treatment at Powick Hospital in England received international acclaim. Hoffman continued to take small doses of LSD throughout his life and always hoped to find a use for it. In his memoir, he emphasized it as a sacred drug. Quote, I see the true importance of LSD and the possibility of providing material aid to meditation aimed at the mystical experience of a deeper, comprehensive reality. So think about what he's saying all those years ago. Um, There it is. There's actual spiritual use here, he is saying. But isn't it interesting that April 19 is Bicycle Day, and this is related to the man who supposedly invented it, taking a little bit too much and going on a trip trying to get home on his bicycle. Now it's bicycle day. So the invention of LSD is being celebrated on the calendar in some way. But one of the things I think it's important to notice is, you know, he's talking 250 micrograms. It's a very tiny amounts that are taken for the powerful, powerful effect on the backside. But this is the thing, you know, we, we say LSD and everyone has it in their mind that it's like, you know, a chocolate chip cookie you know what's in it, right? There's eggs, flour, sugar, and some chocolate. But when we say LSD, you know, that's a catch-all. 
what are the specific chemicals? What are the magnitudes, you know, of the chemicals that are put in? Are they different? I know they are. I know there's different ways to make it. I've actually talked to chemists who did make it. It's not the same. It just isn't the same. And what's crazy here is even all this way back, you know, what is this, 1943? They're saying there's these important uses, these spiritual uses. Well, rapid forward till now, people have done studies to show for people with terminal diseases, they've used drugs like LSD, and the effects have been just astonishing. These people scared to death that they know they're dying, and they've used these substances and it changes everything. They see a side of reality that changes everything. They're no longer afraid. They welcome that everything dies. It changes everything for them. And yet what we see of these drugs is they're all illegal and they're all made to be scary. And the beneficial uses are never allowed to come through. You can go get books on how many people have tried to do honest clinical research with permission to use LSD for these important actual end of life and other things uh, that have been proven to be effective and they're cut off every time that I've read about them. They're cut off. Nope, it's illegal in this state now. Oh, sure, you can do a study, but you get five micrograms and you can only do this for two months. This kind of nonsense. It's because they're aware of the power that can be unleashed here. When Albert Hoffman was interviewed shortly before his 100th birthday, he called LSD medicine for the soul and was frustrated by its worldwide prohibition. It was used very successfully for 10 years in psychoanalysis, he said, adding that the drug was misused by the counterculture of the 1960s and then criticized unfairly by the political establishment of the day. He conceded that it could be dangerous if misused, because a relatively high dose of 500 micrograms has an extremely powerful psychoactive effect, especially if administered to a first-time user without adequate supervision. In my view, this is part of what went on in Haight-Ashbury and the weaponization of LSD was to defame LSD because they knew there was a power that could be used for so many beneficial things to include expanding consciousness, by the way. It's just... At every turn, powerful people who make laws and these intelligentsia places like the CIA, they always get their fingers into the pie on important things. And I think this is another of those things. And so for my money, the weaponization in the 60s was also one of the planned side effects was to give LSD a terrible, terrible name and make it a thing that was easy to control, outlaw, and basically prevent people from taking it in beneficial directions. In 1947, Sandoz Laboratories marketed LSD under the name Delicid as a psychiatric drug to be used for treating a wide variety of mental disorders. The Sandoz company provided researchers with free supplies of LSD. In its marketing literature, Sandoz suggested that psychiatrists take LSD to gain a better subjective understanding of the schizophrenic experience, and many did. So let me ask a simple question here. With addiction for things like opiates and pain pills, how many doctors do you suppose have addicted people who have never taken a pain pill, or for that matter, no experience with addiction? 
this is 1947. There was still some common sense and still a little bit of higher mindedness within the medical community. I mean, am I alone in saying, hell yes, these people are dealing with it. They should take it. They should comprehend what the heck they're talking about. But here we are again, all these beneficial things for things like schizophrenia and other things. I've read a lot of research that has some pretty astounding claims that things like this were cured or made much, much better. And all of this, as far as I know, have been blocked. And most of it was allowed to be made criminal in our minds because of what was done with this drug to take down the counterculture of the 1960s. But what would it be like if in 1947, people were allowed who wanted to do good things to continue to do their studies and research that were urged, take this. So you have firsthand experience of what you're dealing with. What kind of a world will we be living in? You know, in 1950, a former bootlegger rum runner named Al Hubbard was reading through a copy of the Hibbard Journal, a European science publication, when he stumbled across an article about a then relatively unknown chemical compound called LSD, which was slowly but steadily gaining scientific interest due to its properties as a powerful hallucinogenic. Al Hubbard was instantly fascinated by what he read and was able to track down the researcher who wrote the article and obtain some of this substance for himself. Hubbard ingested some, resulting in a profound experience in which he decided to abandon his uranium business and dedicate himself entirely to promoting the use of LSD, which he now believed to be a powerful utility for opening the human mind. He was now on a mission to spread its use. Hubbard traveled to Switzerland, where he purchased 10,000 doses of the drug from Sandoz Laboratories and began introducing LSD to a wide assortment of people from all over the world. This included such thinkers as Aldous Huxley, whom Hubbard would strike up a longtime friendship, as well as Alcoholics Anonymous founder Bill Wilson. Hubbard introduced LSD to prominent psychiatrists in Hollywood, who in turn would introduce it to many of their celebrity patients, including Cary Grant, Jack Nicholson, and Stanley Kubrick. Hubbard was known to travel with a leather satchel full of pharmaceutically pure LSD and, by all estimates, introduced more than 6,000 people to the drug, earning him the nickname the Johnny Appleseed of LSD. And it sounds like there's something important about what was discovered here, doesn't there? Kind of sounds like the people, I mean, look, he's got a uranium business. That must be a good paycheck, right? So he takes LSD and something changes. Oh, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to switch over to this thing, which I think is consciousness and spiritually expanding. That's a hell of a jump from uranium to a spiritual mindset. And then he gets into the rich and famous. And, you know, we've covered Huxley and others. Isn't it interesting that the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, that's a story on its own, can be associated with LSD. My point is, is there are all these things in our world that could really, truly make positive differences. In my mind, LSD is one of those things. But the problem is, is that it's controlled by the wrong people and it's been defamed. And for my money, I wonder if those original chemical constituents that made these LSDs that we read about that had so much promise, uh, are those even known anymore? Or is it personal information of some corporation? Who knows? The point being is that 
in our world until we get to a point where research like this is fostered and urged forward. We're going to be in a tough spot, which is where we are now. And we're facing a world takeover right now. And I am currently of a mind that for us to get beyond what's happening and what's about to happen, these systems all got to come down now. They've all got to be destroyed and we've got to start clean. And that's a hell of a thing to consider. But on the other side, what if we did have medical establishments that were interested in spiritual ideas, that were interested in mind expansion, these kinds of things? This is the world that I hope for in a hundred years, but we can look back and we can look at the records of things like we're reading here and see what happened. People found this thing that had all this promise. And what do we know about it now? It's been defamed, it's been illegalized, and it's been weaponized. Other than that, not a lot has come of it. Although, like I said, within the last maybe four or five years, I'm aware that microdosing, psilocybin, is being partially allowed in certain places. I guess that's a step in the right direction. In one of his more fortuitous encounters, Hubbard also turned Myron Stolaroff onto LSD. Stolaroff was a senior official at the Ampex Corporation, an early Silicon Valley tech company. As a result, Stolaroff himself became a huge proponent of LSD and would introduce the drug to many others in the early computer industry, including Apple co-founder Steve Jobs. It is said that a lot of early computer scientists were inspired by the use of psychedelics, thanks in large part to Al Hubbard's introduction of the drug to Stolaroff. Makes you wonder if the LSD back in this time was the consciousness expanding recipe. Look at all these people. These are people that are stamped into our history books. You know, we don't think of LSD in that way. LSD is a, a hippie drug, right? Those dirty hippies took LSD. Look what we're saying here. Um, Silicon Valley, uh, the movers and shakers of the 20th and 21st centuries, uh, all taking this drug. Just saying. Al Hubbard began referring to himself as an LSD researcher and had dreams of setting up a series of clinics in order to train other LSD researchers. In 1953, he met with Dr. Humphrey Osmond, a Canadian psychiatrist who was known for his research of hallucinogenic compounds. The two men developed a form of psychedelic therapy involving high doses of LSD and geared toward achieving a mystical or conversion experience for people seeking to overcome psychological trauma. Hubbard extended his practice of psychedelic therapy with Dr. Abraham Hoffer at the University of Saskatchewan. He would later use this therapy for helping chronic alcoholics achieve sobriety in California, though there were accusations at the time that Hubbard charged high fees for his services and was being financially exploitative. Overall, though, his therapy was held in high regard by many in the psychiatric community. By the 1960s, Hubbard was enjoying an esteemed position at the Stanford Research Institute, where he was running special LSD sessions for a government think tank. This has led to speculation that Hubbard was involved in the infamous MKUltra experiments conducted by the CIA, though this has never been proven. So here we are again. In the same paragraph, we have the insidious idea of MKUltra. I even think there's a modern movie that portrays someone who's been MKUltra and doesn't even know it and is actually a weapon finds out on accident. But the other side in this paragraph is they're helping chronic alcoholics. 
Is there a more difficult uh, addiction to beat than alcoholism? It's up there, right? One of the reasons it's up there is because it's legal. It's easy to get. And this is my point. We currently live in a world that is controlled by people who are happy to have an Alcoholics Anonymous, but not so happy to have an actual therapy that would make short work of addiction, like iboga, like uses of LSD, as we're reading about here. But on the other hand, these places that don't give a damn what's legal or what's not because they do whatever they want, uh, they're going to use it in perverse ways for things like MK Ultra. And so this is the world. This is the world where we are now. And I think, honestly, we have to assess. So many people kind of, I think, are feeling like, well, we're going to get back to normal at some point here. Well, no, we're not. No, we're not. We're coming into a new age and all, all these things that we've built in these systems, they've got to come down now. And we should be actually kind of rooting for that in a way because we need to build something better. We need to build something that gives a damn about lives. And from my point of view, what we're talking about here, LSD, mushrooms, DMT, all these things should have a place in the new medical whatever it is on the other side of what we're going through here. And wouldn't it be a hell of a thing if someone who was addicted was rare because the medical community isn't trying to addict them. And if they were addicted, they walked away a day or two later, free and clear, because we have these possibilities. And the reason we do is because of the things we're talking about. And so, you know, the truth is in our face. What's getting more playtime here? Curing addiction or MK Ultra? Which one of these things is getting more play with the application of LSD, would you say? Getting back to 1953, we will now examine Project MK Ultra, or just MK Ultra as it is often called, which was an illegal human experimentation program that was designed and undertaken by the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency. It is intended to develop procedures and identify drugs that could be used during interrogations to weaken people and force confessions through brainwashing and psychological torture. It began in 1953 and was officially said to be halted in 1973. This project used numerous methods to manipulate its subjects' mental states and brain functions, such as the covert administration of high doses of psychoactive drugs, most especially LSD, but other chemicals were used as well. This was done without the subject's consent, and electroshocks, hypnosis, sensory deprivation, isolation, verbal and sexual abuse, and other forms of torture were also used to achieve the desired results. There is a suggestion that these experiments were a continuation of work begun by the Axis powers during World War II. Most MKUltra records were destroyed in 1973 by order of CIA Director Richard Helms, so it has been difficult for investigators to gain a complete understanding of the more than 150 funded research subprojects sponsored by MKUltra and related CIA programs. Here we have it. Here's the world we live in now. So they're going to admit to two decades, 53, 63, 73 is what they're going to admit to. What do you suppose went on there? Suppose the recipe changed, suppose methodology changed, suppose any of it was used in a positive light or was all of it weaponization 
or, or perversion at some level. And by the way, he, he goes on to say, well, this might have been going on in World War II, but we're not sure. That rolls it back yet another decade. So that's over a generation. And so here we have the misuse of a thing that could be very, very positive. And I would be willing to bet that if, in fact, CIA director had all the records scrubbed, what they learned was not. And what can you learn over 20 or 30 years? And by the way, of that time, the middle of it is the 1960s. So they had real world laboratories, which is what the hippies and Haight-Ashbury and the Bay Area and everything that we've covered that went with it was all part of this. What do you suppose they learned? It's a hell of a world. And we are now reaping the whirlwind. This is all coming to a head right now with probably within my lifetime, we're going to find out which way this is going for the short run. And the last point for hour one. On May 6th, 1953, Aldous Huxley took 400 milligrams of mescaline under the supervision of Dr. Humphrey Osmond. Huxley commented, it was without question the most extraordinary and significant experience this side of the beatific vision. The following year, he published The Doors of Perception. In the book, he described his experience with mescaline. The Doors of Perception provoked strong reactions for its evaluation of psychedelic drugs as facilitators of mystical insight with great potential benefits for science, art, and religion. While many found the argument compelling, others countered that the effects of mescaline are subjective and should not be conflated with objective religious mysticism. This book is said to be the reason behind Jim Morrison naming his band The Doors in 1965. Aldous Huxley continued to take psychedelics for the rest of his life, and the understanding he gained from them influenced his final novel, Island, that was published in 1962. Do you know if that last novel mentioned is uh, similar to the recent movie of the same name, Jason? I do not, actually. That's with, uh, what's her name, Scarlett Johansson? I'm not familiar, to be honest. I'm not familiar either. I'm not, I, I didn't even, I'm not aware of this, uh, this novel at all. But I mean, look at what we're looking at here. Huxley actually does this. He, he takes mescaline, but he does it with a doctor there. He then turns around and says it was without question, the most extraordinary and significant experience. This side of a beatific vision uh, changed his life in spiritual ways. Then he writes a book, The Doors of Perception. A lot of people are catching on to what's in this book, and then it's weaponized. Weaponized to the point where the doors lift their name from this book. And do we need to remind everyone who the doors were? Jim Morrison's dad was busy telling lies to start, based on a lie, the Vietnam War, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, Jim Morrison's father being an admiral or a rear admiral, I forget. So his father is on the big stage, weaponizing, starting wars. And Jim Morrison is on the small stage, weaponizing, drugging the living daylights or playing their role in this. And people get upset because they like the music. I like some of the music too, but I'm under no illusions here. If you wanted, you could go read The Doors of Perception and make your own call and see if there is reason within those pages to consider that there are significant spiritual gains to be made, or whether it's something else, what the mainstream is saying, 
they counter that the effects of mescaline are subjective and should not be conflated with objective religious mysticism. And I say poppycock to that. We can look at endless indigenous peoples that use mind-altering substances in spiritual ways. But unfortunately, in the part of the world where I live in, we have to change our mindset to get back to that possibility. Because what we have been raised in, most of us, is we get high in this country. And if we can get beyond that, I think there are absolutely consciousness-expanding possibilities, spiritual possibilities. The one thing above all other things from my days of abusing drugs, because I was not looking at the time for spiritual upliftment. I was getting high. At least that was my mindset. It showed me that this place is alive, incontrovertibly alive. And one of the strange things is while you're having the experiences, or at least from my point of view, it's like, how is it that I never realized I can hear the color blue? It's weird. How could I have lived my whole life? And then when you're done with the experience, you remember that you heard the color blue, but now the perception is gone. It's like, oh, I I must have been really high and confused. I thought I could hear the color blue. But when you're in the experience, it's real. It's as real as it's, it's actually more real than real, I would say. And there's so much promise in so many things, but we're currently under a dark cloud. Currently, people in a death cult are running our world. And I think we're all going to find out pretty quickly that the population is in free fall. A different world is on the other side of wherever the zero point ends up being. And that sucks because human beings don't like change, particularly change at that level. Huge change. Everything changes. But on the upside, if we pull our damn selves together, we can be key in building what comes next. We can build a better world. Anyhow, Jason, anything you want to add before we wrap up our one? Well, to answer your question, the answer is no. That 2005 movie does not come from that book. However, Leonardo DiCaprio appears to be looking to do an adaptation of it for television. Hmm. This is one novel that I'm not even aware of, so I'll try to go make myself a little more aware of it because it did come from our uh, Huxley gang in and around the circles of power, having written things that echo out into every school district in this country and continue to be assigned reading. But anyhow, I'm going to wrap up hour one of episode 531. We're going to take a short break. We're going to come back and we're going to keep going. These are fascinating topics. And my only caveat is be careful. These are powerful, powerful things. And I don't know how to describe to people who've had no experience with it, anything more than this is dynamite. So don't play with lighters. If you get serious about this, and you want to change your state of mind and have a spiritual experience, that is possible, but you got to do what you got to do to get there. With that, Hour One is free to everybody at pro777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Members know to log in for the full episode. They get free access to all the forums, uh, comments under every episode, and they also get free access to the two-hour film called Shoot the Moon, which covers all my telescope work, to include the double sun or the sun we don't see, which is being filmed more and more 
And I also suspect that is another thing that will be part of the new age. I think it is quite possible that the new era, the new age, we may have two suns in our sky. And that's an outlandish thing to say, but I think it's possible. With that, I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. And I hope to see you logged in on the other side. There it is, man. Cheers. Belief is the enemy of knowing.